From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today's teens say the pressure they feel at school is almost too much to bear. Depression, anxiety, even sleep deprivation. If you are in the gym all day every day, you're going to get injured. If you are working nonstop without any break, you will burn out. As a part of our special series, Teens Under Stress, we're focusing now on solutions. Then children tell city planners what they want to see in their communities. So you see how there are kind of flat rocks you can step on next to the creek path here and jump from rock to rock? Mm-hmm. The kids had requested getting closer to the water and also playful elements. Plus, a Colorado folk musician who records out of a studio in his barn on his three-acre farm in Boulder County. Oh, my drunken southern star, how you tried to hide in darkness, slip from orbit, now you're dangerously close. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Teens who feel like they're under constant academic pressure are at greater risk of developing depression or anxiety. Pushing teens to excel can also hurt self-esteem and increase sleep deprivation. As part of CPR's Teens Under Stress series, we've been talking with a lot of people who felt overwhelmed by the problem. Now, let's talk about solutions. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine investigated what people can do to make school less stressful. Hi, Jenny. You have a lot to tell us. Hi, yes. I did a fair amount of research on this. Before we get into the solutions, what did your reporting find about how school stress is affecting kids? First, teens say academic stress is their number one stressor, and some teens are really suffering. Many kids are over-identifying with outcomes like grades and test scores, making them lose their love of learning. Some kids take way too many advanced classes, and that stresses them out. For other kids, economic uncertainty, testing, even the structure of school is adding to their stress. So there's this big ball of stress How do you even start untangling it? What's first? Yeah, I talked to Dr. Lisa Damore about that, and she's a psychologist, educator, and author of a couple of books on teens. I'll play some clips from a speech she gave for an organization called Challenge Success, and it believes there's too much focus on grades. Damore focuses on five things that kids and parents can do right away to reduce academic stress. And the very first is to talk about it, open up the conversation, explain to teens that some stress, like working outside your comfort zone, is good. School is supposed to push your thinking. But she says for many kids, school has become a form of chronic stress. That's where there's no opportunity for recovery. So to undo that, students have to take class loads that are manageable and build in recovery time. And I like this. She uses a metaphor of weightlifting. If you are in the gym all day, every day, you're going to get injured. If you are working nonstop without any break, you will burn out. She says school is like a weightlifting program of the mind. It only works when there are opportunities for recovery. Okay, I'm intrigued by this idea that some stress is actually a good thing. 
And adults should be letting kids know that? Yeah, she challenges students to know how they like to recover after a stressful day. So it could be watching a SpongeBob episode, for example. Her challenge to the grown-ups is make sure your teen has time to recover. Don't let them overschedule their lives. And I personally will add this. Talk about realistic options after high school, not just elite colleges. She also says that we overlook some of the important building blocks to recovery, right? Like sleep? Yeah, she says if she had to boil down in one word why we're seeing so much stress and anxiety in kids, it would be tired. They're just tired. Sleep is the glue that holds us together. We're better at thinking, solving problems, coping with difficult emotions. We're in better moods when we're well-rested. And if we don't get enough sleep, that is when we feel stressed, that is when we feel anxious, and that is when we feel fragile. Elementary students need, on average, 11 hours of sleep. Middle school, 10 hours. High school students, 9 hours. And many kids are getting way less than that. I know I did in high school. (laughs) What is Lisa DeMore's recommendation for improving that? Well, she says if parents can do one thing, it's get the technology out of the bedroom, including grown-ups' bedrooms. And if you can, no technology 24 hours a day in bedrooms. Using technology in a bedroom during the day actually corrodes your ability to fall asleep at night in that same bedroom, even if the tech isn't there. I know not all families have that kind of room in their homes, but if you do, get the tech out. That is the simplest, easiest thing that we can all commit to that will make sleep better. All right. Damore also says parents need to talk about lack of motivation. Just like stress, kids need to know that it's normal to feel unmotivated sometimes. That's right. Some parents transmit the message that the ideal kid is the one who's psyched all the time about whatever we put in front of them. That's not how humans operate. What parents can help their kids or teens do is plan for when the motivation is not there. And what might that help look like? Damore says if a kid is unmotivated, offer your company, so do your email or pay your bills next to them. Not being alone with difficult work goes surprisingly far. She also suggests helping them develop tools for breaking apart all their work so they can divide their time into chunks and really focus for 25 minutes, then take a five-minute break. Or do five problems, then get a treat, like a couple of M&Ms, five more problems, then a couple more M&Ms. The kids for whom school feels most manageable are not the kids with the highest IQs. School is most manageable for the kids who have the best strategies for motivating themselves to do the work they don't feel like doing. And we should just talk openly about the fact that that is what academic success often requires. You've been talking with a lot of teens for our series, Teens Under Stress, and they said they feel pressure from adults to perform, and that really stresses them out. How can adults talk about expectations without putting too much pressure on kids? Yeah, DeMore says this is a lot about how you praise and how you convey disappointment. Doing this the right way can actually reduce stress for teens. A lot of parents and caretakers say, oh, just put in your best effort. That's what's important. But when we see the bad grade, our eyes convey something else, even if a kid has put in the effort. And adults can pay attention to praising the effort, the process, and not the outcome to reduce stress. If disappointment increases stress, do the opposite to reduce stress. And how can adults do that? Well, here's some examples. So praise a teen for pushing through a class where they don't like the teacher or when they decide they don't want to take four advanced classes like all their friends. Praise them when they cultivate hobbies that won't show up on a college application. And finally, she says, we tend to praise inefficiency, the student who does more than what's asked. Praise efficiency instead like this. 
you know, I saw that you thought you had a pretty good sense of how you were going to do on that test, and so you went online and found three sample tests and took them, and you crushed them, and so you did not study any further. That is some good work. That kind of efficiency is what I would like for us to be praising. And so that efficiency, it's really important. Um, As you've been talking with kids, there are actually a lot of expectations parents put on teens. I imagine that comes from a good place. They want their kids to do well and be happy as adults. Damore pushes back on this idea that grades actually lead to well-being, right? Yeah, she's getting at the idea that a lot of parents believe that economic or professional success leads to happiness. So what some parents do is they reverse engineer from that point. They say, okay, their kid needs to go to a, quote, good college. How do they do that? Good grades. And then parents start being curious about what a kid gets on every quiz. Damore says that assumption, that the goal to a child's long-term well-being is the A on the test today, that is not supported by data. Of course, for some students, you know, doing well in school is about catapulting them out of poverty. But far too many parents are way over-involved in tracking grades. So what does contribute to a child's long-term well-being? Yeah, this is interesting. The data shows that if you're poor, your well-being tends to be low. So economic security is important. But once you're comfortably past the poverty line, other things play a bigger role. High-quality relationships, doing work you find meaningful, that you feel like you're doing good at your job. And fourth is physical health. It turns out that the main factor in childhood and adolescence that is correlated with these terrific well-being outcomes is conscientiousness, being a kind, decent, ethical person, being long on character. If you are kind, decent, and ethical, you tend to have good relationships, you tend to do meaningful work, you tend to be decent at your job, and it can contribute to long-term health. So what does that mean for parents? Demore says having high standards for ethical behavior and and holding your kids to them. Live the values you say you believe. And Jenny, do you have some ideas for how teens can manage stress? Maybe some simple tips? Yeah, first, uh, definitely go to CPR.org slash teens because we link to a lot of instructions for how to relax, how to calm yourself. You know, I've used them. (laughs) But the acronym PDF is helpful. So first, P, playtime. Make sure you have unstructured time just to be with friends and do hobbies. D, downtime, take time to relax, reflect, and just be. Again, eight to 10 hours of sleep at night, turn off the media 30 to 60 minutes before bedtime. And finally, the F, family time. Sometimes teens, of course, don't want to spend time with their families, but research shows time spent with families makes teens feel safe, supported, loved unconditionally. Jenny, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine and our special ongoing series focused on teens under stress. When we come back, creating a kid-friendly city in Boulder takes on worldwide importance. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Benta Berkland, host of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. Each week while the state legislature is in session, we'll break down the latest developments. Find Purplish wherever you get your podcasts and at CPR.org. There's a growing movement within city planning across the globe to put children at the forefront of the decision-making. That means asking kids what they want out of their city. And they've got some interesting suggestions, like... Having parks with a coffee shop connected to it so that the parents could be drinking coffee and having a snack while they're watching their kids play right next to them. Sometimes you can either have it fenced in so for the younger kids, the parents can really relax and not worry about them running into the street. 
That's Mara Mincer. She co-founded the organization Growing Up Boulder 10 years ago. And the work she and her colleagues have done in Boulder has been a model for cities all over. Their latest project, a city map designed for children and by children. Producer Alexandra McMahon met up with Mincer to test out the map. Where are we standing right now? We are standing outside of the municipal building in the city of Boulder, and it's right next to Boulder Creek. And what have you got in your hand there? I have two of Boulder's child-friendly city maps, or Mapa de Boulder Amigable para Niños. These are the country's first printed child-friendly city maps. And if we opened up one of these maps right now... Where are we going and how is it going to help us get there? Okay, so this map, which was co-created with almost 800 children and families, more than 50% of whom were from underrepresented backgrounds, features kids' favorite places to visit in Boulder. Oh yeah, okay, so there there we are. Yep, we're right at right near Boulder Public Library and we can actually walk over there and see some of the work that the kids have actually done over the past 10 years to make change in their own city. Oh yeah, let's do that. Yeah. Do you have shoes that can walk off path a little? Yes. Okay. I think I'll be okay. Okay, I'm going to show you some of the cool stuff that kids helped influence. More than 200 kids gave input to the design of all of this space. And so we're actually going to walk on some of the features that were influenced by kids' recommendations. So you see how there are kind of flat rocks you can step on next to the creek path here and jump from rock to rock. Mm -hmm. Um, The kids had requested getting closer to the water and also playful elements and lots of wildflowers in nature. So in the spring and summer, this is filled with native wildflowers that invite birds and and bees and butterflies in, uh, which is one of the main things kids had requested. There's like steel grates. The kids had wanted to look from the bridge down and see, oh, it must be over the water. The kids wanted to be able to see the ducks down below um, and really have a better view. And so they specifically made grates so that you could look down and see into the water on the bridge. And how common is it for uh, city planning departments and like groups like Growing Up Boulder to work closely with children and get their input and get, you know, that demographic. I think it's fairly unusual in the U.S. There are definitely many cities that have their own versions of getting young people's voices. Um, As far as we know, we are the only ones doing it this way other than um, there's also in Jacksonville, Florida, another city that calls itself a child-friendly city. But we're the only ones who've been doing it this long continuously in the United States I will say around the world, there are many more child-friendly cities who do this sort of work. So you do see it internationally even more. So this is the playground and all these ideas came from young people. Okay, yeah, it's got that kind of squishy turf ground. Yeah, and there's this great, I think they call it a water screw. Water features were the number one requested element that young people have asked for. And we found this in every one of our projects. So water is featured all throughout here. You can build a dam to stop the water from flowing down. You can turn that whole sandy area into a lake. All right, where to next? Well, I think what we should do is go to the Pearl Street Mall so you can see more of the elements. Just gonna show you where we just were. Yes. So you have some reference. So we are here at the Boulder Public Library. Here's the Creekside Playground. Mm -hmm. We have images of what you can do around here, like tubing in the creek, 
There's a kid's fishing pond further up. We really wanted to think about literacy levels, both so that kids could use this map themselves and not rely just upon adults, but also so that adults in our community with low literacy levels could also enjoy this. It's also, I want to point out that it's bilingual, which was equity was a really big piece of this project. And so we wanted people from all communities to feel more connected and more ownership over Boulder's amenities. So we only feature free or low-cost activities on the map, and we also show how to access them by public transportation and biking. So we're going to go up 9th Street to get over to the Pearl Street Mall and see the Spinning Man and Waterfall Rock. Okay. Why is it really important that cities are child-friendly? And do you think that this could work in every city? I completely think this could work in every city. And there's a saying in our field, which is a city friendly to children is a city friendly to all. And it's really true. When you design a smooth path that you can push a stroller along or ride a bike down if you're a kid and you can't drive yet, that also helps a person using a wheelchair or a walker to have that smooth path. Got across the street here. Okay, see, he didn't stop. It's not very child-friendly. No. You know, I wonder if it'll encourage kids like, on actually how to read a map, because I feel like nowadays like we're so dependent on technology and, and GPS. Like, I mean, It would probably be hard for me to even pick up a map and figure out where I'm going just based on that, because I'm so dependent on my phone and, and all of that. So are you hoping that this map will also you know, increase those skills for children? We already know that it has increased map reading skills for kids. You're absolutely right that a lot of kids no longer know how to read maps. And so what our teachers have been doing is actually utilizing this as part of their curriculum now in ways we hadn't even thought of. So we're about to go on to the Pearl Street Mall, yep. and let's see if we can find Spitting Man. Okay. Maybe maybe I should have you try and find it yeah, using the map. That's a good idea. Let's see if you can do it. I just talked about how hopeless my map reading skills are. Well, <laughs> if you can't do this one, then maybe we haven't designed it well enough. <laughs> okay. Oh, I see. Yeah, you should be right over there, Let's right? go find okay. him. He won't be spitting at this time of the year. They have to turn the water off. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is it, huh? Yes, there's oh. Spitting Man. Oh, Wow, yeah, he, I, when, if I was just walking by, I totally would have missed it. A lot of people don't know about him, yeah. but the kids all know because he's kid-sized, uh, and he's at a kid level. So if you ask most kids, they may not know that's what it's called, Yeah, but they can all tell you about it. It's the adults who've missed it. UNICEF USA is trying to adapt the Boulder model of a child-friendly city and bring it to communities all over the country. For some perspective on the nationwide impact of this work, Danielle Goldberg joins me. She's the Director of Advocacy and Engagement for UNICEF USA. Hi, Danielle. Good morning. Like I said earlier, this is something we're starting to see in cities all over the world. Can you tell me a little bit more about where this idea for a child-friendly city initiative came from and how UNICEF got involved? Sure. Well, to, to take a step back and like to introduce to, to everyone who we are at UNICEF or the United Nations Children Fund. Uh, so we've been working since 1946 in 190 countries and territories to save and protect children. And increasingly, children are in urban environments. Uh, so Child-Friendly Cities initiative was developed by UNICEF 20 years ago uh, to address those issues and bring children and decision-makers together uh, to put the needs of children at the forefront of decision-making. Because children really are stakeholders in the cities. Um, exactly. Compared to other countries, how f- child-friendly is the U.S. already? 
Well, I would say that we, we can look at national statistics to look at how we're doing compared to other countries. And that really is uh, the impetus for UNICEF USA, who does advocacy education and fundraising for UNICEF here and abroad, um, for us to take this on and bring this to the United States. We looked at, uh, we conducted a national situation analysis of child well-being in the U.S., looking at global and national data. And we are 37 out of 41 among high-income countries in terms of child well-being, whether that be health, safety, education, participation. Uh, and I think it really speaks to how are we considering the needs of all children in all of our policies, decisions, and budgetary um, uh, decisions in, in across the country. And what kind of things are you looking at in cities that make it a, a city where a child can have high good well-being, where they can be safe? Sure. So the, the Child-Friendly City Global Framework, which uh, just to step back, it's actually been conducted while it's new as a formal initiative by UNICEF in the U.S., it's been taking off over the last 20 years and is in 3,500 municipalities. And, and we like to say in the CFCI world, uh, you look at one child-friendly city, you look at one child-friendly city. Uh, however, the CFCI framework looks holistically, bringing everyone together to look at what every child needs to be healthy and succeed. So we like to, to think about five key goals and one for every finger. And you can't take off one finger because and function. That's looking at safety and inclusion, um, child's participation in decision-making, access to equitable social services, safe living environments, as well as having uh, the ability to enjoy play and leisure through public spaces. And where is this happening internationally that might provide a framework for what a child-friendly city could look like here in the U.S.? Sure. Well, there is so much we can learn from other countries around the world, both high income and, and those in developing countries. Uh, we're currently operating CFCI in over 40 countries, and we are a global network. So examples around different issues that a city might want to address, like urban participation, child participation in urban planning can be seen all over the world. Um, just one example, and there's so many, I was Looking at uh, some of our colleagues in, in uh, Ukraine, there's a city called um, Vinitsa, and they are looking at how to find solutions, particularly in, in underserved communities, by creating a new mechanism to hear from children themselves. They train children in project management, and they set up a fun contest to ask children what do they think can be a solution to make their city more child-friendly. Then children got to vote online to participate, and then the city budget um, drew funds to actually fund some of the best projects. And they're going to do this every year. So these are examples that we are sharing amongst ourselves uh, around the world that are made available to cities uh, and stakeholders who want to take on this model. And I am curious how this initiative is serving children who are underserved. Um, we heard from Mara Mincer the feedback that this is inviting communities who maybe don't always know how to use a park, whether that um, or don't always know that they're welcome at a park. Um, how does this relate to what UNICEF is doing? Thanks. Uh, good question. So, so one is that we globally the CFC model is a, a recognition model. So we're hoping that cities undertake this in partnership with UNICEF. And while every city to get recognized as a child-friendly city will take different priorities based on local context making sure that you're demonstrating uh, dedication to eliminate discrimination in all local policies and actions is a requirement. And so that can be done in practice. One is just through inclusion. So when you undertake this process, you have to We're gonna bring have all to the stakeholders together. 
What was that? Um, we actually need to wrap up, but Danielle, thank mm. you so much for yeah. joining us. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Danielle Goldberg is with UNICEF USA and is working with cities across the country, including Boulder, to make them more child-friendly. After the break, the Colorado National Guard is now positioned to be a key part of the recommissioned Space Command and new military branch Space Force. We'll explore their involving mission. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This week, Colorado Public Radio is bringing you special coverage of the Senate impeachment trial on CPR News when proceedings are underway. Access to this important, developing story is an essential part of Colorado Public Radio's commitment to keep you informed. During this coverage, we're also making the regular CPR News daily schedule available on HD Radio at 90.1 FM Channel 2 in Denver and online at CPR.org. The Colorado National Guard turns 160 today, with its formation dating back to 1860. That's when two military companies of citizen soldiers known as the Jefferson Rangers and the Denver Guards were created. Since then, the Guard has gone through a number of changes, and it's now positioned to be a key part of the recommissioned Space Command and new military branch Space Force. I spoke with Major Scott Sharkey, executive officer of the 117th Space Battalion of the Colorado National Guard in August about their evolving mission. First, in the most basic sense, what does a space soldier do? They don't actually leave the ground, right? Not yet. We're working on that. Uh, (laughs) I would say the best way to categorize what they do comes to three broad areas. First of all, planning. Secondly, fighting. And third, and pertinent only to the National Guard soldiers, helping. So let me talk about each one of those real briefly, if I could. Combatant commanders across the world are constantly conducting contingency plans, worrying about what if this happens, what if that happens. Um, People in the Middle East have a certain set of problems they're worried about. People in Europe have a different set of problems. They rely upon their staffs to inform them on what those issues are, how to best plan for them. What the space support soldiers do, the space support team, the, the one you just alluded to, they integrate with those division commander staffs to make sure that the space capabilities that can be brought to bear for those contingency plans are the latest and greatest that the nation has to offer. They advise, they make recommendations, and they ensure that all of those capabilities are integrated into that planning process. As far as fighting goes, it's just what it sounds like. There are active combat operations throughout the world. We continue to um, pursue ISIS in the Middle East, and there are soldiers on the ground that rely upon support from above to make sure that those operations are conducted as successfully as possible. So these space soldiers are providing, I have to be careful about the specifics I get into here, they're providing capabilities to the, the soldiers on the ground to make sure that those combat operations can be conducted as successfully as possible. And then third, and unique only to the Colorado National Guard, is helping. And in things like wildfires, floods, um, other national disasters, the governor has the option to deploy us to support civil authorities, and space soldiers do have a role to play in supporting our firefighters, emergency responders, and other uh, civil authorities when it comes to um, fighting natural disasters. And you've mentioned space capabilities a couple of times. What is a space capability? Yeah, again, I'm going to be uh, as broad as I can here, but I'll just give an anecdote or a hypothetical anecdote if that's helpful. So let's say that a um, commander was planning on conducting an operation in some particularly unforgiving terrain and perhaps wanted to employ some weapon systems that were dependent on having very precise navigation um, information being available to those weapon systems. So what we would do is look at a couple of variables, such as the 
orbital alignment of a GPS constellation, maybe if there's a solar weather event that would degrade those, those overhead assets, and we would make a recommendation to that commander to say, hey, sir, hey, ma'am, between this hour and that hour, this is the ideal time to conduct this operation because we have looked at a variety of variables and can um, advocate that this is the time, the best time, that you'll have ideal coverage to make sure that those assets on the ground you rely upon are most likely to be successful. We're hearing a lot about space in regard to the military lately. Where does the National Guard fit in? Yeah, great question as well. Um, The Colorado National Guard is exceptional in that we provide the vast majority of space forces across the entire formation. Um, I'd say it's a combination of a couple of factors. Um, There's obviously a large military presence in the state. You know, Peterson Air Force Base, Schriever Air Force Base, Buckley Air Force Base. Um, the Academy, Air Force Academy, uh, Fort Carson, there, there's a large military presence here. So that's sort of the first data point to consider. Uh, the second is that it's a really high-tech economy. And not just a high-tech economy, but a high-tech economy with a lot of people that in aerospace and aeronautical engineering. Um, and because of those two factors, you have a, I'll call it a talent pool to draw from, where people have the technical skills. They are able to obtain the, the necessary security clearances, which, which is a really big deal. And then finally, because of You know, people tend to serve who have family or friends that have served. Because of the close-knit nature of the military community in Colorado, you have people that are inclined to serve and inclined to to serve their country using those technical skills that that they've amassed. So because of that kind of happy confluence of, of factors, Colorado is the premier state in the National Guard when it comes to providing space forces. And I'm interested in those technical skills also because members of the National Guard, they have day jobs, of course. For these units, what kind of fields do they generally come from? Yeah, another great question. So... The short answer is everywhere, but um, a little more specificity is that we have a lot of people that work in the defense industry, a lot of people that are aerospace engineers um, in their, their full-time job, um, a lot of people that work in software. I'm, a, uh, I'm a, in a software development organization for my um, civilian employer, Charter Communications. And then we also have a lot of people that are network engineers for, you know, the Cisco's of the world and stuff like that. You know, that said, we also have um, a, uh, a staff sergeant, Kiva, in our formation, whose full-time job is she's a musician. So you'll have everything from musicians to, you know, software engineers to um, aeronautical engineers. And the important part is that these people have made the choice to serve. And regardless of what background they bring, what skill set they have, um, the most important thing is their willingness to serve the state, serve the country, and just be ready to conduct the mission whenever called upon. And like you said, you're the director of software engineering at Charter Communications here in Centennial, but you've also been on deployments. Yes, I deployed once in 2009-2010 to Baghdad um, with the 30th uh, Infantry Brigade Combat Team. And then I just returned in the fall of 2017 on another deployment with the 169th Field Artillery Brigade. And we also participated in a mission similar to that of ARS-26, where we had um, responsibilities in both um, the, it's called Operation Spartan Shield, which is a sort of a forward posturing deterrence mission, and then also the ongoing fight, Operation Inherent Resolve, the fight against ISIS. And how often are your troops deploying? It varies, but generally speaking, a National Guard soldier can plan on deploying every four to five years. Now, there are um, opportunities to deploy uh, with greater frequency if you'd like to, but we have a model where for every year that you're deployed, you are entitled to four years of what they call dwell time. But again, for some people that are enthusiastic about deploying or that the circumstances work out better for what's going on in their civilian career, they have the, they have the opportunity to volunteer to deploy on a more frequent basis. Major Sharkey, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Major Scott Sharkey is the executive officer of the 117th Space Battalion of the Colorado National Guard. We spoke in August. The Guard's formation dates back 160 years ago today.
Some people who used to be in prison are stepping on stage to share their most harrowing experiences. It's the newest project from Modus Theater. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf explains it means much more than just a performance. When Joaquin Mobley was in prison, he felt like his humanity was stripped away. Even the simplest of interactions with staff, maybe a handshake, would have made a difference, he says. I think it would have made me feel human again. When you're going through that system, a lot of us... We feel like the titles that they give us, criminals. And as a result, some of us start to believe that. And then once you start to believe that, you start to act out that way. Ever since he got out in 2013, he's tried to resist this label and recently got involved in a project called Just Us to develop his story for a stage performance like this one in front of 1,600 people at a conference on restorative justice last summer. They let me out with just $10 in my pocket. No fresh clothes, no hope. I almost didn't make it. He says it was an empowering experience. I've never shared my story with that many people I didn't know. So initially, as I was talking, I was nervous. But as we got through it, it felt like a burden off my chest. For 17 weeks, Mobley worked with Boulder's Modus Theater to turn his real-life story into a theatrical monologue. Mobley says he got stuck in the streets selling drugs as a teen, addicted to the lifestyle even when it got him in trouble. The notoriety, the fame, the respect, and of course the fast money pretty much keeps you enticed and pulled in. He says he straightened up for a bit. He was going to school, studying fashion design, and raising two kids when he ended up short on cash. While you're waiting on financial aid to kick in, um, my mind was I can just jump back in the streets, make some quick money, and I got involved in an armed robbery that led me to receiving 15 years in prison. Modus Theater found Mobley and other individuals who had done time and helped them think through their stories, figuring out what part of their lives they wanted to share and how to share that on stage. We learned how to articulate our opinions and ideas a lot better. And also, it was also like a cathartic experience for a lot of us. A lot of us was dealing with a lot of inner trauma. All of them have powerful stories to tell, but being so close to these stories made it difficult to tell them. Modus Theater Artistic Director Kirsten Wilson says they first had to process that trauma. Trauma destroys narrative, which is why often when you interview people in war zones or you interview people who have experienced violence, the story they tell is circular and confusing. But those are the stories we most need to hear. Wilson founded Modus Theater in 2011 to create theatrical storytelling events that focus on social issues. In this work, we have an opportunity for not only the people who are formerly incarcerated to say, I'm sorry that I've caused harm, but actually looking at the harm caused by the criminal justice system. That's why Modus invites people in the system to hear and even read these stories. They sent me into that evil place, and it is crazy in there. This is Boulder County District Attorney Michael Doherty at the same restorative justice conference. He's reading the words of a man who is standing right there next to him, who went to prison on drug charges and described how violent it was on the inside. I don't want to kill anybody, but I don't want to be killed. Every chance I got, I was calling my mom, crying, like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. I was on my own in the Doherty was blown away by the rawness in these words. It was very emotional and incredibly powerful. I actually underestimated the impact it would have on me, and I think fair to say the impact it would have on people in the audience. 
He says he's already making changes in his district, like offering more mental health care. But Justice has inspired him to do even more to make jails and prisons better for the people who live and work there. Kevin Wright directs Arizona State University's Center for Correctional Solutions. He is all for anything that brings out the firsthand stories of people who have experienced prison life and says we can learn a lot from them. So as a scholar, I can talk about prisons all I want and what I've read about them and what I see through my own eyes, but I actually haven't gone through that experience. And so they are uniquely positioned with some expertise that many of us don't have. Just Us performer Joaquin Mobley says people who are formerly incarcerated can also learn from themselves. Even if you don't plan on performing your story, and I'm speaking to people that were formerly incarcerated, write it down. Share it with your loved ones, or even if you just share it with yourself in the mirror, you have no clue how that makes you feel as far as freedom and getting it off your chest. Modus Theater will bring these performances to communities around Colorado and eventually around the country. I'm Stephanie Wolf, CPR News. Folk musician Gregory Allen Isakov has a lot of range, even within a single song. One moment there are majestic waves of strings and percussion, the next is spare with almost whispered vocals. They say it's the taken This is Chemicals, the lead single from Isakov's most recent album, Evening Machines. He recorded it in his home studio, located in a barn on his three-acre farm in Boulder County. When it was released in October 2018, the record garnered praise from Rolling Stone and Billboard, and now it's nominated for Best Folk Album at the Grammys this weekend. Let's listen back to Isakov's conversation with my colleague Ryan Warner in 2018 around the album's release. They met up just before a sold-out show at Red Rocks backstage in Dressing Room 3. This is my first time in the bowels of Red Rocks. Oh, yeah. Did you walk through the thingy? We walked through the hallway (laughs) with all the artists' signatures, so... I saw Mariah Carey. Yeah. I saw Lauren Hill. Have you signed the hallway? I think, I think so, somewhere. It just occurs to me we're in a dressing room across from the laundry facilities. Yeah. I keep thinking, who has sweat <laughs> on the towels? Good point. Across the way. Yeah. I want to say that the album's title comes from the actual machines in your home studio, which is a converted barn on your Boulder farm. Give me a sense of what the days were like recording evening machines. I tend to really dive into making records. I bleed into those things. And so I can never do it. I mean, this was the quickest I ever recorded a record, which took about a year. And I've always made bedroom records, you know, setting up a bunch of mics in a room where I live. And I think that's just because I could never afford hourly rates at a studio because I was like, this song is being written the next over the next month while I record it. So... And, of course, your studio is on your farm where you yeah, live. So right. it, in that way, it is a bedroom record. Yes. And you, you said you bled into this. What does oh, that man. mean to you? Well, I re-recorded, you know, I recorded over 35 songs for this record. And then fully tracked, changed keys, changed tempos, you know. 
You obsess. I just, I'm not a perfectionist by any means. There's okay. mistakes all over the record, but it just has to feel good. It has to feel right. What do you mean there are mistakes all over the record? You know, because we did some of it live, you know, maybe there's not, there's maybe some imperfect noises going on in the background, or maybe our timing's a little off here and there, but the song moves and it travels and you feel, you, you know, emotively uh, go there. is a song that you co-wrote with your brother, Ilan. I understand you wrote this track on your birthday? <laughs> I, did, I did. Yeah? This particular day, I just wanted to kind of plug in some amps and just make some noise. And my brother was staying with me. And he's like, what are you doing tonight? You want to like do something? And I was like, I want to write this song. I have this, I have this melody in, the, in my back pocket. And you know, we kind of just worked throughout the night and just wrote you know, 15 verses. The song was almost 20 minutes long, and over the next few days we kind of whittled down and figured out what the song was about. It seems to me that it's about an immigrant story. It's an immigrant song, yeah. You and your brother are immigrants, yeah. right? You were born in South Africa. Yeah, my, my whole family's immigrants. I grew, my best friends growing up were all immigrants. I have so many perspectives on what it means to be an American. I see so many sides uh, to it. Just because when we moved here, everyone was just like, this is amazing. America is incredible. We moved in the height of apartheid. So it was like, wow, like... This is an incredible place, you know. It would have been in such stark contrast. Very, yeah. And for a lot of my friends. color lines there. Yeah, my friends that moved from India at the same age and other places, you know. But now, I mean, there's a lot of crazy happening. And I mean, we've been touring the whole world and I've seen this in a lot of different countries and it's not just here, but the amount of racism and sexism and we're not as, as, as forward as we all maybe thought. And you feel that globally? I feel that globally, yeah. With as many songs as you had for this album, how do you begin to whittle them down? Must be like picking a favorite child. Yeah, it's like picking your favorite weird children. It was a tough process at first, and then I remember it was like the spring was starting, my season, my farming season was starting, so I had a lot of work going on. You are a farmer in addition to being a musician. Yeah, I farm like half the year. So I remember I was plowing everything, getting ready for spring planting, and I remember I had my headphones on, and I would just, I knew that the record wanted to start with birth, and I didn't know why, and I knew how I wanted to end it. And so I would just keep playing something, I'm like, all right, I'm not mad if that's next, and then keep playing something else, I'm not mad, and then, you know, 44 minutes for vinyl, you know, that's what we're always after. 44 minutes for vinyl? Yeah. 22 each side? Pretty much. Okay. Yeah, sometimes it can go a little longer or less, but... I want to point out, birth is B-E-R-T-H. Yeah. The kind of birth you'd be on in a ship or a train. Birth, it's a great word. 
B-E-R-T-H. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're backstage at Red Rocks, I guess in dressing room number three, with Gregory Allen Isakoff, the Boulder County folk musician. His new album is called Evening Machines, and he's taking a few minutes before a sold-out show to talk to us. We gotta talk about Caves, one of the first singles from the new album. The sound is lush, as your sound often is. It's huge. And it strikes me, Gregory, as the kind of song that's going to encourage people to sing with it. Mm-hmm. I, I think there are a lot of background vocals there are, in yeah. it. This town closes down the same time every day. Put out the in your mind. Let's put on. It almost strikes me as like a a drinking beer hall song, hearkening back to a time when in union halls people would sing together. Do, do you think that's that's right? Yeah, I mean, we recorded that there was like 20 people in our barn just singing every word. And we kind of were after sort of a, a bizarre sing-along, you know? Like a... Like a I don't know, like an otherworldly, like a pretty bizarre storyline, but yeah, that kind of anthemic feeling. What is the bizarre storyline? For me, that song's about that like kind of love of silence, you know? I wrote that with a great friend of mine, Ron Scott, from Austin. We've written a bunch of songs together. He came up to visit me from Austin. He's an awesome, bizarre character, too. Uh, And, you know, he'd wake me up in the morning like, Greg, I found... I think I like birds now. I found some in the field, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I'm writing that down, Ron. And then I would just follow him around the farm and just write down weird what he said. And then we kind of had all these pieces of paper in front of us and we kind of wrote that song in a day. Now I think I like birds. And his friend was visiting from St. Paul. See on fire from St. Paul. We were driving her to the airport and that St. Paul line got in there. And I go running when the night aches. You know, I find, Gregory Allen Isakoff, that you are able to write lines that are so short and so packed with emotion. And in this song, it's, where our insides on our outsides. Uh Showed our insides on our outsides. And I just thought that pierced to the core Uh of what it is to be vulnerable. Uh Uh-huh. I remember writing that line because I was outside of my house. It was like a full moon, one of those big, bright moons where you see like the entire garden. You see the sheep like in the background. You see their eyes all kind of lit up. And I thought, there's no hide. You can't hide in this kind of light, you know, like you could in at night. It's it is piercing. Yeah, piercing. I was reading the liner notes, and you give credit to someone for God noises. Oh, yeah. The heck are God well, noises? God noises, you know, Jamie Mefford and I have been making records for a long time. He had a bunch of these old keyboards laying around, and I was just I'm like, Jamie, let's make some God noises of this song. <laughs> I don't know why I call it that. But we just kind of coined it, and he's like, I'll do God noises on this. You mix the God noises on that. And Jamie didn't work on this record, but we kind of kept that language. <laughs> And is the idea that these are the sounds that make it feel ethereal? Ethereal, you know, it could be anything, organic or analog sound that 
you can maybe throw back in the end of a mix or really far away or maybe throw through some distortion or delay that maybe you don't hear on the first lesson, but it kind of makes you feel something. There's a lot of God noises on Was I Just Another One. Did you light up every lantern? You flame whipping against the wind. Did you fall back to the alleys? With all your secrets to defend. It's sort of a song about a relationship to someone like on heroin. Um, but that's the least interesting story to me. I don't really care about any of what these songs, what the stories are for me, of any of them. I just really am after making something that people can connect to in their own lives, you know, make it theirs, make it part of their life. You know, there are websites where people will analyze what a song means. Yeah, sure. I, mean, I think one of them is song meanings. Yeah. Do you ever look at what your fans are saying, what your songs mean? I haven't. I'll, maybe I'll do that. I don't know. You don't have to do it that. It might be cool, because I think that's the coolest thing about music. I mean, that's what I've been given from so many artists in my life. That music is so personal to me now that I don't even feel like it's there. Maria's on the hill, she was outside of her eyes. Five dollar wine as a blanket inside. Lay up the pages on a traveling bed. Watch the blood of Christ mountains all they all turn red. Boulder folk musician and Grammy nominee Gregory Allen Isakov speaking with Ryan Warner in 2018. Evening Machines is up for Best Folk Album in the 62nd Annual Grammy Awards, which airs Sunday on CBS. That's it for Colorado Matters today. I'm Avery Lill. You're listening to CPR News. Shut your dad.